Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The pattern you see with these gurus is in order to get attention, they need to be providing takes that are way out of the mainstream. And they're usually quite wrong as a result. I mean, the mainstream take is not always correct, but if you start throwing darts all over the place, you're probably going to get rightly ridiculed or criticized for it. So it is a risky proposition. They're all subject to a great deal of criticism from outsiders. Even at the same time, they're building up a lot of fans on the inside. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. In today's episode, I'm going to pause to take a look at a phenomenon that has fascinated me for a few years now, that I've been observing as an exponentially emergent thing on YouTube and on various Medium and Reddit blog sites, but that really hit its pop cultural zenith in the land of podcasting. That is, the rise of the brocaster guru. Think Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, Joe Rogan, Russell Brand, and Lex Friedman. You might have listened to these podcasts because they are some of the most popular in the world, and I've tuned in to most of them at various stages. I've really enjoyed them, and I've been a guest on Russell Brand's podcast, Under the Skin. These broadcasters tend to be a very specific crew of opinionated and mostly extremely bright middle-aged white blokes, sometimes with academic credentials but mostly not who often start off with a very small L liberal heterodox outlook, shouldering up to really big important topics that I do think often need a countertake and a rigorous dissection, sometimes providing a spiritual or psychological perspective, which again, I think is needed today. They traditionally rise to prominence questioning the status quo and big business. They showcase new expansive theories, criticize rigid binary and fundamentalist thinking, You know, they've mostly shaken things up and in a good way, but then something happens. As they become more and more popular, they can often take on a messiah vibe. They get more experty and more categorical and then in many, many cases start to veer into quite right-wing clickbaity territory, conspiracy theories and trigger topics like ivermectin and Andrew Tate. Basically, they become a whole lot of the things that they started out criticizing. I've found it baffling, disappointing, and worrying. 
They also, as a bit of an aside, tend to have extreme diets and lifestyle habits. Either they're fully vegan or fully carnivore or they're mad fasters. They dig stoicism, Jungian or hero-based mythologies, biohacking and MMA or other forms of fighting. Now, in the past year or so, I've come across two academics who are equally fascinated by the phenomenon of these new gurus. One is an exiled Northern Irish cognitive anthropologist based in Japan. The other is an Australian psychologist, and they launched their own podcast to investigate the phenomenon, and it's called Decoding the Gurus. They have literally spent hundreds, if not thousands of hours watching long-form YouTube videos, listening to podcasts, tunneling down Reddit threads to get a grip on the whole thing. And today I have the Australian half of the bro duo, Matt Brown, on to talk through where these bro gurus emerged from and why now and what it all means and whether we should be worried. Matt is a professor at Central Queensland University where he does research on gambling addiction and delusional reasoning. And today we talk grifting, the intellectual dark web, galaxy brain, and why young men in particular flock to these gurus. Some of what we cover might be new to some of you. Really, it all is happening outside of the mainstream media or MSM as the gurus like to call it. But I think you'll agree it's worth knowing about and reflecting on for its broader implications. And I will just say one final thing. Matt and Chris, his co-host, are scientists and do look at all of this through a very materialist, rational lens. Me? I'm a lot more open to the insights that spiritual and esoteric disciplines can bring to our world where there are not always material answers to be had. I meditate, I pray in my own way, and I'm also open to new intellectual disciplines bandied about by some of the gurus they target, such as sense-making, which I cover in a previous episode with David Fuller, if you want to look it up. His podcast has also been dissected by Matt and Chris. I did wonder after my chat with Matt if I should have pushed back more on some of his criticisms of some of the principles that the gurus expound, such as sense-making. But in the moment, I felt best to let you all form your own opinions, and I felt Matt was not being overly cynical or unkind in any way. Okay, let's get on with the interview. Welcome to Wild, Matt. It's awesome to kind of virtually meet. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sarah. Let's just cut straight to it. Can you describe what you and co-host Chris do on Decoding the Gurus? As we say at the start of every episode, we uh, listen to these um, characters, mainly on the internet, who profess to have some special insights or, or breathtaking new way to understand things, and we try to understand what they're talking about. And we cover good people and people who aren't so good. But what we try to do is is really strip back some of the bullshit, I suppose, and really find out whether or not they're saying meaningful things, reasonable things, or whether there's a bit of double talk and um, rhetoric going on that are maybe tricking people into thinking that they're saying something profound when they're really not. Yeah, right. That's a good description. So why did the two of you start it? Like it's, and you're also such an unlikely combination of <laughs> podcast hosts. Like I think you're based at just outside Bundaberg and Chris is based in Tokyo and you're academics in quite different fields. And yet you do this. Why? Why? <laughs> 
Yeah, well, he's a cognitive anthropologist and I'm a psychologist. So there is a bit of an intersection there um, where I've always been interested in the basically the reasons why people believe things and how to convince people of things, particularly slightly strange things like belief in the paranormal, certain kinds of, of spirituality and religiosity, complementary medicines and so on, and anti-vaccination attitudes. Yeah. And uh, Chris, as a cognitive anthropologist, has had a similar kind of focus, really. He's, he's looked at the nature of belief and ritual in his career. But we've really been looking at this current crop of, I guess, alternative media figures. The more famous ones, you, people probably know, people like Joe Rogan or Jordan Peterson, Russell Brand, these people that are out there um, with this kind of crazy wisdom, supposedly, and alternative to the mainstream stayed media that people traditionally consumed. You mentioned a couple of the names, Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, Russell Brand. These are the biggest podcasters in the world, like literally. They've got the biggest audiences worldwide. Some other names, I'm thinking Lex Friedman, does he fit into the category? Sam Harris. These are all sort of the big names that dominate. Are they also the gurus that you're talking about? Yeah, they definitely are. There are lesser known ones, a couple of um, ex-academics, uh, Eric and Brett Weinstein, their brothers. And their wife. One of them, they've got a wife, don't they, who also yes. is part of this crew. That's right. Heather Haying um, and, um, and Brett do their podcast together. They've recently been very interested in, um, well, anti-vaccination uh, messaging. There's uh, like other strange figures, like a fellow called J.P. Sears. He used to create these YouTube videos sort of mocking, I guess, wellness, wellness. culture. But they were really and, funny. Yeah. Yeah, and they were, they were quite good and it was always a bit odd and he's progressively taken it to be a kind of, yeah, I guess anti-institutional right-wing firebrand really, um, more and more aligned with the MAGA sort of Trump um, reactionaries in the States. Because he used to be quite reasonable and left-wing, wasn't he? Like, I mean, I used to sort of watch some of his piss takes on he used to demonstrate wellness stuff. Long hair, is that the guy? Like I'm thinking of sort of a guy with long hair? That's the guy, long sort of orange hair, yeah. And he was a big Czech head as well, C-H-E-K, yeah. which is for anyone listening, Paul Czech is a fitness guru who started a very particular, almost cult-like fitness regime. I've got the right yeah. guy, don't I? Yeah, so his, his trajectory has been quite strange. Um, but, you know, we've seen a similar kind of trajectory with people like Russell Brand, who has had, a, you know, most people know he's had a long history in UK entertainment, essentially. For a long time, I just thought of him as simply as an entertainer. But he has increasingly gone down a kind of conspiratorial, anti-institutional uh, road. Um, and he probably uh, exhibits really well some of those guru-esque properties. Well, let's talk about those because I know that you and Chris have this, I don't know if it's a guru meter or garometer. I think it sounds better as garometer, <laughs> where you sort of put each person through a bunch of metrics, you know, a dozen or so metrics. Can you just share a couple of those that sort of dictate whether somebody's a guru or somebody's a legit kind of authority? Yeah. So, our podcast is pretty tongue-in-cheek and the garometer is reasonably tongue-in-cheek as well, but it, it is informed by um, academic research on on cults and belief and that kind of thing. So one of the features we tend to look at is um, anti-establishmentarianism, where they really do 
um, I guess, provide that conspiratorial point of view where you really can't trust people. Um, you know, it could be experts, it could be doctors, it could be Fauci, mainstream media generally. And really, they present themselves as somebody who you can really trust and you need to go to if, if you want like the true unbiased understanding of what's going on in the world. So that's kind of related to, as I said, conspiracism. And there are these elements of cultishness as well, which is that they build up a very loyal following. Jordan Peterson, of course, famously has people who are very strongly about him. And he, in turn, as a kind of figurehead, uh, tends to emote very strong things to, towards the um, people that he's engaging with. So that they have that kind of emotional connection that you don't generate don't tend to generally get from someone, say, on the ABC in Australia. Is galaxy brain or is that just a term that you use? I can't remember if that's a gerometer metric. The galaxy brainness is definitely a metric. Describe what galaxy brain means. Okay, so that's someone who presents ideas that as being almost too profound for the average mind to comprehend. So they present themselves as a kind of font of wisdom, that they've got this all-encompassing kind of knowledge, which which allows them to make amazing takes, deep insights across a wide range of fields. So if you have Jordan Peterson, for instance, his background is in psychology like me, but he certainly doesn't restrict his insights to, to just psychology or self-help. Um, he goes much further afield. So these gurus often present themselves as, I guess, intellectual polymaths um, who can do pretty much anything. We had a philosopher on our show quite recently who described it as a kind of intellectual virtue signaling. So the usual kind of moral virtue signaling is where you know, you're know you presenting yourself as, as a good person because of the very good opinions that you have. Whereas I quite like his idea of intellectual virtue signaling because that's what our gurus do. Everything they kind of do is a bit of a performance, which is about showing you, the consumer, that they are, are deep thinkers with profound insights, somebody who you desperately need to listen to. I think one of the things I've noticed about this group of, well, mostly men, and I should say I used to listen to all of them at one stage or another, I do notice that they use this incredibly reasonable language. They're very reasonable. They do all this, I've done all my own research speak, and they do these long episodes where they're very considered. And it's sort of in that very scientific, reflective way, you know, of presenting information with fancy jargon, much of which they make up, which I think really adds to their authority, their faux authority. I think you call it pseudo-profound bullshit, <laughs> um, which is a great yep. term. I think that cuts straight to it. Maybe you could just share some examples of this pseudo-profound bullshit and the way it's spun and pre presented so that people know what you're talking about. Interestingly enough, uh, pseudoprofound bullshit is actually a topic of academic inquiry. So there's a, it's a technical term that, that, yeah, that philosophers came up with. Originally, when they were studying this, they were really interested in stuff that um, people like Deepak Chopra would say. So typically, these spiritual type gurus. So Deepak Chopra would have these deepities, like there are no <laughs> extra pieces in the universe. Everyone is here because he or she has a place to fill and every piece must fit itself into the big jigsaw puzzle. He would say things like, um, it is in the nature of babies to be in a state of bliss. Now, when you just let this kind of language sort of flow over you, it feels right. It feels truthy. It has this sort of feeling of, of truth about it that you're getting some sort of insight. A similar kind of thing you'll see in the, in the worst kind of TEDx presentations where you have these sort of bite-sized chunks of 
supposedly intellectual content, but is very easy to consume, gives you that kind of click in your head that, oh, this, this seems right. Wow, I've really gotten an insight from this, but can be quite shallow. So you're quite right in that the gurus generally practice a kind of, they like to project a sense of objectivity and a kind of dispassionate intellectual distance to things. So it's very much a matter of, like you say, Joe Rogan would like to present himself as not a partisan, someone who doesn't have strong political views. It's just a guy, you know, asking questions, trying to figure stuff That's out. That's another phrase I've heard you guys bring into your podcast. Is it J.A. Jacking? Just asking yes. a question, J.A. Queuing. Yeah. Yes, or, or <laughs> jacking off. Question. Yeah, jacking <laughs> off. And, and Joe's a classic for it, isn't it? Like he claims he's Switzerland and yet he's come out supporting Trump and Andrew Tate. Like, yeah. and yet, you know, I'm just asking questions. No. <laughs> like he's literally said, I love Andrew Tate. And for anyone listening, Andrew Tate is probably the worst example of misogyny doing the dance around the internet at the moment or not doing the dance around the internet because literally he's been banned by just about everyone in the last sort of couple of weeks. And I think I think I saw on one of your platforms that, um, yeah, that, that clip where he literally says, I and my kids love Andrew Tate. Yeah, so there is a streak of misogyny certainly amongst many of them. And as you say, they, are, they do tend to be these middle-aged uh, white guys. Uh, but our interest in this is not sort of political either. I mean, I say that, but we do have some examples of left-wing gurus and certainly in the health and wellness space, you can find stuff that isn't, doesn't have a right-wing tendency. But I guess with a lot of them, they do tend to have a, a kind of reactionary red meat kind of gut punch to them with that veneer of intellectualism. And I, I think that's part of what makes it so attractive to a certain kind of demographic. I mean, most of us like to think of ourselves as not ideological as not as rational, as not sort of blinkered partisans. Like I think a lot of the people that are attracted to them are attracted to them for, for good reason, like for, for, for worthy reasons, and that they are curious, they are interested in, in fresh positions on things. They might feel a bit frustrated with a feeling that the, that the mainstream stuff that you might read in, I don't know, The Guardian or something is too, is too constrained or politically correct or whatever. But these guys, I think, do smuggle in a strong streak of reactionary emotional hooks. I want to go back to some of that left versus right political leaning uh, in a moment, but let's just break down a little bit of why this has all happened reasonably recently and what it's all saying about society broadly. These gurus, as you say, are mostly men and they tend to be white and middle-aged as well. Have you got any idea as to why this particular cohort gets so extra, you know, on the guru stuff. Like, there's a few women, as you say, but they really don't go as far. Yeah, and we talked about this a little bit recently uh, with the guest of ours, Helen Lewis, who asked a similar question. She's awesome, by the way. That episode is just a delight for anyone listening. <laughs> if you just want to have play some intellectual calisthenics and just be blown away by a very bright mind 
listen to that episode with Helen Lewis. Who is she? She's like a journalist who did that famous interview for GQ, wasn't it, with uh, Jordan Peterson, where she really held her own. Yeah, that's right. She's had a long career as a journalist, has has written books, essentially a feminist, I guess you would say, has uh, written a book called uh, Difficult Women. She's a working British journalist. And I think there's a, I think there's, there's a healthy streak in British journalism, which is uh, no bullshit, cut to the chase, yeah. <laughs> won't let people get away with stuff. They're vigorous. They're very vigorous. They've got that reputation. At least some of them do. And uh, I had a thought, which is that, I mean, one thing we do know in terms of uh, sex differences between men and women is that men do tend to be more prone to risk-taking. So, um, you know, whether it's gambling problems or violence or even car accidents, uh, across the spectrum, you, you see more, I guess, um, status-seeking risk-taking behavior against uh, amongst men. Uh, I thought that might have something to do with it. So what you mean is that they're more open to going to the edge in intellectual thinking and push out sort of radical ideas and be open to the criticism that may come with it, but in the end it actually gets them into that, well, the algorithms, you know, that love a bit of outrage. Yeah, like the, the pattern you see with these gurus is that they have to make extremely hot takes. They have to be you know, in order to get attention, they need to be providing takes that are way out of the mainstream. And they're usually um, quite wrong as a result. I mean, the mainstream take is not always correct, but if you start throwing darts all over the place, that you're probably going to get rightly uh, ridiculed or criticized for it. So it is a risky proposition. They're all subject to a great deal of criticism from outsiders, even at the same time, they're building up a lot of uh, fans on the inside. So I guess in, even amongst traditional gurus or cult leaders generally, you tend to see a preponderance of, of men in you know, age 30 plus. Yeah. I remember looking into this some time back and I think it's something like 70 to 90% of people with narcissistic personality disorder are men. It, 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 it is much more prevalent among men. Do you think that has something to do with it? Yeah, definitely. I'm really glad you mentioned that. In fact, I wish that I'd thought of it at the time to mention it to Helen Lewis because she correctly pointed out that uh, that kind of risk-taking um, that I mentioned does tend to sort of uh, slow down in, in middle age. So how can we don't see more young men? The narcissism side of things, that is one of the facets on our gerometer. And I feel increasingly that that's the key that kind of unlocks the whole puzzle. You have to have just an unreasonable degree of self-confidence, an unreasonable degree of opinion of yourself that to enable you to be this kind of, of guru. And it just feels like we see an, an awful lot of narcissism running through all of our toxic gurus. So just to emphasize, um, not, not all of the gurus that we cover are, are bad or have these toxic features. Um, we've covered some people that we think are good. Carl Sagan um, was a bit of a personal guru of mine. Look, he, he may well have had some of these personal traits that were um, not so admirable. Someone like him can be a positive influence on the world, I think. I've also noticed that there's this tendency for these these gurus to cast themselves as sort of lone rangers, you know, like frontier men, renegades who are out there on their own doing all of this research, living their weird lives, you know. They've got these weird diets as well. <laughs> yes. I think you refer to Cassandra complex. And I'm wondering where that all fits in. Are they a product of our times where there is this sense that it's 
little us against the Goliath of, you know, government institutions, corrupt business entities, MSM that seems to be have all these vested interests. Do, do you think that's got a part to play in all of this, that they're here to save us, they're here to warn us, you know, and, and they're sacrificing themselves in this incredible way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, that first point you mentioned about them having these weird diets, many of them do, not some of them do subscribe to like an all meat diet or something strange. All like vegan. That. It's either one or the yeah, other. Or, it's either one or the other. And a surprisingly large number of them promote supplements of one oh, kind yeah. or of another. So supplements for your brain. Vital or greens. Your Vital greens seems to be, re- <laughs> I don't know, it just seems to pop up everywhere. We've recently been covering a, a group called, they call themselves the Sense, Sense Makers. So yes. Sense Maker, they promote a supplement called Qualia, which is a brain enhancing I've thing, heard that. supposedly. Well, see, I'm a fan of sense making as a concept. And I've got to admit that I'm only just starting to dive into it and try to comprehend it. But I think the idea, just loosely speaking, of trying to come up with a way that can encapsulate multiple disciplines and paradigms in a way that's a lot more conciliatory, a lot more collaborative. I think that's a really good idea, but I do take some of the points that you're starting to raise around the fact that it can often involve really complex jargon and this guru type speak, but we diverge a little bit there. Yes. Getting back to your, your question about the- The Cassandra complex, the fact that they're here to, to warn us of what's ahead and be the, the savior, the Jesus that we all need right now. Yep, absolutely. So it's all part of that uh, hook, I suppose, which is to position themselves as as a central source of authority or epistemic authority that you need to seek recourse to. Now, part of it, of course, is that self-projection as an intellectual mastermind. That's that's one part. But you also need the emotional hook. Like in sales terminology, it's like the call to action. So striking fear into people or, um, or or focusing on people's fears and anxieties is a, a natural way to do that. So most of our toxic gurus jumped straight on the anti-vax train when COVID came along. They talked at length about the dangers of government overreach, the way that this was going to be a, a new kind of tyranny, that it was all a trick for, for governments to put more control over people. The vaccines didn't work and were toxic and were going to kill you. It was all a lie. So that kind of destabilizing people's confidence is part of drawing them in because you need to tune in again to find out what you need to pay attention to to avoid this, these bad things that are happening. What's interesting is the solution across the board appears to be we need to have more conversations like this. People need to be listening to us. Eric Weinstein is quite amusing in that he'll quite explicitly express his hope that the that the White House will fly him in for special consultations. Well, Lex Friedman, I think, was also sharing that he did in fact head to Ukraine just to be there speaking with people as a solution to the, the crisis. There's a subtype of gurus which uh, are kind of projecting sort of sweetness and light all of the time. And again, there's this, uh, there's an emphasis on personal relationships that if we can just sit down together and, and, and have a real human connection with each other, the, the sense makers also em- emphasize this, then we can cut through all of the misunderstandings, all the partisanship, all the disinformation and so on, and, and really get a handle on things. So, so Lex Friedman expressed a desire to, when he was in Ukraine and going to Russia too, I think he planned, he hoped to sit down with Putin and Zelensky and perhaps remind 
them that the other guy is like, you know, just a guy and we should just sit down and be nice to each other. And that so, peace is good. Yeah. So amazingly naive, but um, quite uh, sweet. Yeah. Kind of sweet in its way. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose what you're saying is it becomes dangerous when they then extend into areas which are beyond their expertise with their galaxy brains and put themselves out there as the authority. Yeah, and and the the emphasis on personal relationships, it sounds nice, but you, you see the issue with Joe. It does seem harmless. Where does it become harmful? Well, you can see it like, quite easily with someone like Joe Rogan, who will trust 100% somebody that he sits down with, that he has a personal relationship with, that he believes is a good guy, that he Got can it. have a drink with and seems like a good guy. Just so, asking questions. Exactly. So he has um, defended Alex Jones throughout his career, um, pretty much on the basis of, of saying, look, he's misunderstood. He's actually a good guy. Explain to everyone what, who Alex Jones is. Yeah. Al Alex Jones is perhaps one of the most pernicious, um, ugliest um, conspiracy theorists and was also really quite politically extreme on the right in the United States. He has everything bad you can think of, frankly. He has a show called Infowars. He became quite famous for amongst his many, many conspiracies, which include, you know, this conspiracy about white replacement, that the that they're going to replace white people in the United States, that the World Economic Forum has a plan to depopulate the world. His conspiracy is extended to these mass shootings that occurred. So at Sandy Hook. That was his real contribution, wasn't it? Saying that the Sandy Hook thing was all made up, which was just tragic. Yep. And he incited his followers to go and um, harass basically parents of the murdered children. And he's currently in court with figuring out damages for that. So Joe Rogan's emphasis on those personal relationships leads him to essentially trusting Alex Jones. And likewise, they are correspondingly suspicious of the, the you know, mainstream figures like scientists or <laughs> health authorities, simply because they don't feel like they have a personal relationship with them. So yeah, there's very much a dark side to that. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, moving on to the fan base, because who are the people listening? Well, it's young men predominantly, not exclusively. I think studies have shown that it is predominantly young men. I guess this is probably the big point I want to understand is why is it that young men are gravitating to these kind of gurus at this point in history? Do you have any sort of idea there? Because I first came across the phenomenon of young men gravitating in this direction when I was doing a hike in the desert 
out past Alice Springs years ago. And there was a 22-year-old kid I came across and he, he wanted to do part of the walk with me. And we had a really great day just chatting stuff out. And he was a massive Jordan Peterson fan. In peak Jordan Peterson times before he got unwell and then re-emerged again with his podcast. But I asked this guy why he liked him and he said, well, you know, we live in a world where we're all coddled and men don't get to be men. And Jordan tells us how to man up and take responsibility, which is kind of ironic, isn't it? Because essentially Jordan Peterson has 12 rules for life and he tells people what to do. There's no agency left there. <laughs> they tell people, you know, these gurus tell us not to be sheep yet then tell us what we're meant to do and think. So anyway, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on why young men are finding these gurus so appealing. There's different kinds of gurus with different kinds of emphases. People like Lex Friedman or Jordan Peterson do have that emphasis on self-help and, and self-optimization and life hacking, that kind of thing. Jordan Peterson in particular, of course, is the, a self-help guru. That's how he made his start. Um, he has strong religious and political themes going on as well, but there's also that element of self-help that is, as you say, targeted towards young men. So in, in a way, it's, it's not too surprising. I guess that's appealing to young people generally, because often young people are the people who are reading self-help books, um, looking to get some direction, um, get some advice, something to hold on to. And if you could if you could take out his sort of homespun wisdom, make your bed and take responsibility for your life and ask not what the world can do for you, <laughs> what you can do for the world, whatever, it's, it's not terrible. No, it's got spiritual um, legacy. It's what the spiritualists have been saying for a long time. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess... They also appeal to people that are feeling a bit um, confused or resentful or lacking direction, feeling like society doesn't have a place for them and are looking to optimize themselves, make themselves better um, yeah. in an individualistic kind of way so as to succeed and prosper. So there's a sort of a separate but related thing on the internet, which is often called the manosphere, of which that very toxic person you mentioned um, is part of, but they are definitely tailored to, to young men who want to know how they can be popular, how can they can be popular with the ladies, how can they be successful, how can they get their life in order and succeed. So I think that's a pressing, I mean, that's something that speaks to everyone's kinds of existential concerns, yeah. I suppose. I think it's always existed, particularly for young men, but I think just about every commentator and psychologist would make the point that we live in an era where there are so few mentors and leaders for young men. And we mentioned that clip before uh, with Joe Rogan talking about how he loves Andrew Tate and his little sidekick person that sits there on the on the podcast with him said something to the effect of people say we shouldn't look up to Andrew Tate because, you know, he's not a great um, leader. Well, who should we all look up to? You know, he asked that question and I think that's a valid point. I think there's a lot of people feeling like they're missing moral leaders and so in step these new gurus providing that, you know, for young men. Yep, yep. I think that's a good way to describe what's going on. Um, I guess part of what motivated what we do is that we deliberately call these people gurus, which traditionally has a religious or a spiritual or a moral dimension to it. And I guess in pre-modern or less modern <laughs> times, societies tended to have those kinds of moral authorities. In a secular, modern, scientific, rational world, 
we don't so much. Um, we rely on institutions um, and more impersonal sources of intellectual and moral authority. And I guess just from a social psychological point of view, that is less compelling, less emotionally appealing than a personalized sense of moral authority. The other thing too, when it comes to epistemics, which is just figuring out what's true in the world, we all have to, I guess, delegate trust to various sources. Otherwise, we'd spend our entire day. And I think actually, I think uh, your guest that we were just mentioning before, Helen Lewis, pointed to this. She said, like, if we didn't have leaders or you know, authorities that sort of gave us some guidance. We'd be like waking up each day and going, oh, what is a cucumber? <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, that's right. What is a spoon? Yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, even someone like myself who's, you know, I'm a working scientist, a working researcher, I'm not going to drop everything and go study the, the primary research. Do your research. own research. Do hmm. my own research. And I would recommend that people don't do their own research because um, un unless you have a, a PhD in the area and 20 years of experience, you'll probably do it very badly. What you're better off doing is is figuring out how to delegate your trust. And obviously, people with longstanding expertise in an area and recognized scientific authorities are a good sources of trust and we can we can make a list and how one should partial it out appropriately but it's obviously a difficult challenge for us all isn't it yeah and, and especially in a world that's it's getting exponentially more complex and fragmented and I think that really would love to get a, an idea from you as to why well I guess for some historical context we are in a time of flux and if I have this right, you're definitely the person to speak to, although it's probably also Chris that needs to talk to this. We do tend to turn to the occult and gurus do emerge in times of uncertainty to provide comfort and guidance. When I was doing a little bit of work on the conflation between wellness and conspiracy theories during COVID, I ended up being somebody who knew a fair bit about this. That's a long story, but if anyone wants to go and look up links in the Guardian where I was sort of speaking about this kind of thing, they can. But one of the theories that I found compelling, the former US Surgeon General Vivek Murthy talks about this, that in times of uncertainty and flux, as we are in the moment, we are more likely to sway to the tribe and, and what the tribe is thinking and saying rather than turning to authority because belonging to the tribe is actually more important to us, to our survival than anything else. So that's why people will like on a Facebook post by a friend about some conspiracy as opposed to trusting, I don't know, an authority like a proper journalist who is accredited to share this kind of information or a scientist. And I get it. I really do get it. And do you think that that's got a big part to play in what's happening at the moment with these gurus? Yeah, I think just from an evolutionary point of view, a lot of our social heuristics are based on relatively small groups of people and uh, trusting people who we feel that we have a personal relationship to. In the modern world, everything is much more impersonal and the people we need to trust are people that we had never met and, and will never meet. And um, But social media has provided like a direct link to enable those sorts of parasocial relationships a to false intimacy occur. that yeah. we're lacking. Do you think that men are feeling this more, just back to that question, because traditionally they haven't been as good at forming intimate relationships with their community. And so they've needed to sort of look outwards. And at the you know, moment, it's so easy to go and reach outwards to these sort of faux authorities and not necessarily know the difference between an authority that is a good faith actor and an authority that's a bad faith actor. 
I'm guessing a little bit when it comes to understanding those gender differences. I'm, I'm speculating, but with that caveat, I, I think on one hand, yes, you're right. Men are probably less good at creating and maintaining a healthy social network. Uh, I know I'm not very good at it. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you know, I'm married with two children now, so I feel like I don't need it. The other aspect too, I think, is that I guess looking for a leader and looking for a, a strong, confident leader who will tell you what to do and will clear things up. I mean, again, we're, we're making recourse to gender stereotypes here. And evolutionary theory, which can tend to be the realm of a lot of these gurus, or at least yeah. you're taking that evolutionary theory and sort of botching it up a fair bit. Can be easily abused, definitely. Yeah, make it recourse to some stereotypes. I, I guess I have a gut feeling as to why young men might be prone to it. But the other thing you mentioned, though, is that undercurrent of uh, the occult or like a, a kind of a, a religious certainty and also a religious layer of meaning. Like uh, Jordan Peterson wrote a book, Maps of Meaning. The sense makers uh, in particular, although they use a lot of tech jargon and although they talk a lot in a kind of intellectual, sciencey kind of way, it's quite interesting that underlying that, along with similar to Jordan Peterson um, or Jonathan Pajot, that, that there's a, a bunch of other characters, they have a strong, I guess, belief in a world where there is, where which is not material, that is rather based in a kind of religious thing where, where forms and symbols and meaning is the most important layer. Mythology. They draw on a lot of mythology, yeah. Exactly, mythos. And they generally do feel that that is the, like a layer of reality that is more true than boring old material stuff that you can observe. So they will talk in all seriousness about the existence of demons, for instance. And they certainly do add a layer of, of abstraction and obfuscation to it. But when you drill down, they really are talking about understanding the world in terms of it being a place where you have to watch out for actual demons. Yeah, I think there's a lot of worth, though, in using some of these Jungian symbols and mythological frameworks to understand, particularly things that we we can't point to or look at under a microscope or whatever. There's a lot about our experience as a human that is not material, that we don't understand, that still has lots of question marks over it. That's where spirituality has always stepped in to find sort of some meaning in that itself. So I don't have a problem necessarily with the use of, you know, Jungian terminology and, and mythological tropes, the hero's journey, all of that kind of thing, because it can be helpful to navigate these unknowns. But I think the point that you're making is they extend it into the material. And that's something that I've always found interesting with Jordan Peterson. He will dance between the spiritual and then the real black and white binary material and not really play fairly. So if you go to the spiritual realm and, and try to discuss it there, he'll then launch it back into the material. And if you go over to the material, he'll then start talking this mythological kind of stuff. And I think there's a little bit of, to pick up on the terminology of the sense makers, there's a little bit of bad faith acting that goes on there. It's not integrated. I think that's the big thing. It becomes very black and white and didactic, which is exactly the stuff that the gurus say they're against, that they're railing against, that they're providing a new paradigm for, you know? There's a lot of hypocrisy. Most of the gurus would probably accuse Chris and myself as being reductionist, materialist, unimaginative scientists who can't accept that there's deeper things going on with the human spirit and so on. So part of it plays into not just the uh, disconnect between uh, the sciences generally and 
religion, spirituality, whatever, but even the, a scientific approach to the world and a humanities approach to the world. So if you take continental philosophy or you know, almost any discipline in the humanities, they do deal with the kinds of poetic, allegorical, airy-fairy, fluffy stuff that still is you know, meaningful and important to many people. I read a lot of novels myself. <laughs> I get a lot from them. But it's as you say, they they tend to cross those streams. They mix those two worlds. So so Jordan Peterson will segue straight from sort of cherry picking some scientific findings to Jungian archetypes to the Bible, all of it coming together to give him a cast iron certainty as to why a particular view of the world is correct. And yeah, I just that's not a healthy way to approach things. Well, I think what you just said then, it's the cast iron certainty part that's the problematic bit because the spiritualists and was it fluffy airy fairyists? <laughs> that's not my language, but <laughs> I think generally when they've been speaking in these realms throughout history, they don't do cast iron speak. It's they allow for the possibilities. They encourage sitting in the uncertainty and developing resilience with the unknown. And that's a big part of the spiritual tradition. So I think that, yeah, it's that bit that I see as the problematic part. But there was a point that you brought up just about the political slants of some of these gurus. And tell me if I've got this right. I often observe that these gurus, well, they don't always start out as guru-ish. Well, they slide into it over some time. So they often start out as quite liberal, small L liberal, and quite left-wing, but then move on to taking on very extremist right-wing reactionary values. You know, Joe Rogan, for instance, I think did start out reasonably balanced, but then ended up supporting Trump. I mean, I think he was supporting Bernie Sanders at some point. It's a big jump from him to Trump. So what's going on there? Like, I think there's a lot of conflation going on as a result in part, you know, in part of these podcasters where the political and sociological divides that we used to work to are now just so intermeshed. I don't really know who's meant to be an elite, who's meant to be woke, who's working class, who's anti-woke. And, you know, what, who's a liberal, who's conservative? Like they've all just intermushed, really. Do you understand what's going on? Like these gurus personify it in many ways. Do you have a grand theory or explanation for what the hell is going on today? <laughs> That's a big question. I'm definitely confused as well, Sarah, but I, I have a tentative theory that people sometimes talk about horseshoe theory. Right, which is that you know the extremes of the left and the right can be sort of coming together politically in some ways, and you know you see that um, in anti-establishment thinking. Both the hard left and the hard right tend to be against the status quo. Um, you've seen an example of that in terms of attitudes towards uh, the Ukraine conflict, where you have um, very hard left figures and very hard right figures actually agreeing in in being sort of hyper skeptical of the of the conventional narrative about Ukraine um, and um, supporting Russia and being against NATO. So my theory about this is that there's there's another political axis that's that's emerging, which is is really about are you a sort of conventional sort of status quo establishment person who trusts institutions and things like that. You could be a little bit left-wing or a little bit right-wing, but you're essentially in that sort of high trust in institution zone. And then when you go at the other end of that dimension, you get into QAnon land, but, but also some of the very strong capital T theory 
theoretical uh, left-wing academic stances about what's really going on in the world. You know, I think you see that quite easily with someone like Russell Brand, who has had a kind of like a revolutionary left-wing, anti-capitalist, anti, but also anti-institutional, anti-everything. Anti you know, the, the system, if you like. He's dovetailed quite easily or segued pretty easily into the same kind of conspiratorial talking points that you would usually find in a place like QAnon, which is a, a very extreme, very extreme right-wing American. Um, and they fit quite nicely together because they share that um, hyper-skepticism, um, almost a level of paranoia about about what's really going on, and they, I guess they they share that element with the with the religious sense makers or gurus as well. And that they, there's a strong belief that there is a there is a hidden there is things there's a hidden world. There are things going on that that we don't know about that the the, the conventional narratives are, are hiding from you. So um, so I think that's a disturbing modern trend. I don't think conservatism is necessarily conspiratorial. But in, increasingly in the United States and the rest of the world is kind of following along. We have a few characters here in Australia who are like this. You know, they, they embrace anti-vax. They, they're supporting Putin, believing strange things about there being secret chemical weapons labs in Ukraine. What about the woke stuff, you know, which isn't as big in Australia as it is in the US? I think that anti-woke and woke stuff and the cancel culture debate, it's not as huge here, albeit. I think it, it it does exist and people are abusing the terminology at times, but you do have these, these extremes. So what I take from what you're saying is that the real issue is the extremes and they're kind of doing a dance around the mainstream and finding each other in the dark corners, but they also seem to be anti-woke. Now, woke speak and woke ideas really traditionally come from quite small L liberal left-wing pockets, don't they? Yet some of these left extremist gurus are also anti-woke stuff and also buy into that cancel culture talk as well. None of it sort of really lines up, does it? <laughs> well, yeah, like, yeah, things have evolved. So I guess originally woke stuff was the bleeding edge of progressive values, uh, particularly focused on cultural and personal uh, responsibility, I suppose, for, for various kinds of injustices. But as things have moved on, uh, you know what what's pejoratively termed as woke stuff has has been embraced by you know government policies um, in in institutions like universities where where I work in a, in a kind of bland watered down <laughs> kind of sense. So I guess it is a rallying point for for reactionaries and gurus generally to be anti woke because uh, they very much see it as as part of the the blinkered establishment uh, behavior. I understand it all because these times that we are existing in are so, it's so confusing and fragmented and so hard to sort of pinpoint and define and navigate. So I do understand why there, why there are these clusterings of faux leaders and why there is this need for this kind of comfort. It really does make sense, but I suppose I've got to wrap things up by asking how we can become immune ourselves against 
the dangerous aspects of these gurus because they do start out with, I think, good intentions in the main. They tend to get sort of caught up in the outrage algorithm cycle. I mean, really, that tends to be the trajectory. But how can we ward ourselves against it? Perhaps even learn to cherry pick some of the better information that's out there, avoid the worst offenders. What kind of techniques can you share for that? Well, one of the things that I think um, Chris and I give the wrong impression of when we're doing Decoding the Gurus is that we're kind of reflexive defenders of the status quo, reflexively defending the the mainstream, the institutions, the experts. Um, um, a diversity of of thought, a, a diversity of opinion is is fantastic. And I, I think it is possible to consume this diverse material in a healthy kind of way. Because some of their arguments are worth listening to. And I think it's one of the worst crimes to be um, somebody who looks down on another realm without engaging in it or at least listening to it and, you know, digesting it to a certain extent. So there's no point blocking it. I think it's, it's really worthwhile listening yeah. to some of these podcasts. And they do have interesting information from time to time. Like I do tune in to some of their guests because, you know, they do tend to get some very interesting left of field thinkers from time to time. Yeah, yeah. Someone like Lex Friedman gets gets great guests, and um, you know many of those. And Sam Harris, like, yeah, yeah. Sam Harris as well. Um, yeah. So we're we're definitely not uh, intending to tar them all with the same brush or put them in a category. So these people are bad. Don't listen to them. Um, but rather, what we want to, what we'd encourage people to do is just engage a sense of critical thinking when you are consuming this content. The garometer. Um, red flags, I guess, that we identify. Um, if you see a lot of that stuff going on, then just be on your guard because a lot of the stuff that sounds good, that sounds truthy, that sounds intuitively appealing, emotionally appealing, isn't actually true <laughs> or necessarily a good idea. And I guess it's to, to raise an awareness that there are people out there who are very good at presenting themselves as intellectual supreme sources of knowledge. It's a little bit like the the West Wing, and I give this example every time, but the actor playing the president on the West Wing is so much more presidential <laughs> than any president yeah. uh, in real life. And so when you set out to uh, and make that your full-time job, as many of these gurus do, you will be extremely good at it. So I guess we we'll just encourage people to be on your guard and to have your wits about you. If you notice that they are selling supplements, if you notice that they are seemingly taking uh, like a contrarian or a conspiratorial take on every single issue, if if they're claiming that they've read, if they have no background expertise in something like climate change or or vaccines, but they're claiming to be an overnight expert in it, these are all red flags. And I think just with a little bit of caution, you know, we can all learn to uh, just navigate that online infosphere judiciously. And have some artful fun with it because it is worth learning about a whole range of different ways of thinking, but then applying your own, I guess, critical thinking to go, is this for me? Is this what I feel could be right? I would chuck in one extra element here just from picking up from the stuff that you've been sharing in the last hour, maybe look for some humility. Like, you know, I may not be right about this or this is just my personal opinion. Please don't take it as fact, you know. I think that, you know, and, and sort of being aware of those with that intellectual virtue signaling going on. Really, it, it's about humility, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, it's true. It is a difficult task um, in terms of that humility or those professions of, of caution. My colleague Chris there has noticed again and again that people do these performative disclaimers. Oh, they do, don't they? That's true. Yeah, no, no, I know. And this is what I mean, because you're quite right about that point, like genuine humility. Genuine intellectual humility, um, genuine caution, um, is is something is that is a good thing. Um, but what we see with the gurus is they tend to ape the good things because they're all good signals uh, to to send to people to get them to trust them more. Um, you know, Joe Rogan, of course, um, projects that 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 disclaimer. I'm just asking questions. I'm just asking questions. <laughs> I'm just I'm just a dumb guy. What do I know? But then what do I know? But then he'll segue directly to by the end of the episode, he's ranting and raving with 100% certainty. certainty. Mm. So, you know, when you spot those disconnects that what's on the tin isn't actually inside the tin, then that's a pretty good red flag. Who are some of these thinkers and big mega podcasters and voices in this space who do tend to be able to do that quite well and with some ethical basis. Are there any that you would recommend that we keep an eye out for? That's a good question. I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I guess my philosophy is that I I, I tend to look for people who are an expert in the field, so it very much depends on the question. Um, so I listen to history podcasts and I, I listen to people that that have, that have spent their spent their lives studying history and really know a lot about it. Um, if I'm interested in what's going on with the COVID vaccines, I'll I'll, I'll listen to again um, a, a specific podcast where where there are, are genuine experts dealing with that issue. So name some of your favourite podcasts that are on high rotation. <laughs> okay, um, well mine are very idiosyncratic, and I actually don't listen to ones that tend to be those generalised, you know, what's going on in the world kind of thing. Um, I listened to the Foreign Affairs uh, interview podcast, the podcast like Gone Medieval or the History of England for uh, history stuff. Uh, in terms of news and foreign affairs, I find Monocle 24, uh, a UK-based outfit, uh, to be pretty good. You know, I, I listen to a lot of boring stuff, um, like This Week in Virology, for instance. If you want to know about, <laughs> if, if, if you want to know the ins and outs on COVID, um, go there. Mm, um, okay. But, uh, it, okay. So, very personal recommendations. If Podcasts that are kind of similar to ours and are hosted by people who have a similar outlook to us. They, they're, they're, they're other academics is, uh, two psychologists, four beers and, uh, very bad wizards. I, I like those guys. They're cool guys. Thank you so much for your time. You've left us all with a lot to think about and to maybe be a little more critical about. I'll put all the details to your show and the shows that you've just mentioned in the show notes. So thanks again, Matt, and good luck out there. It's, um, it's a big gig that you have ahead of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of decoding still to do. Thanks yeah. so much, Sarah. As I said up front, I'm not on the exact same page as, as Matt and, and what they discuss on decoding the gurus. I think there is a lot of room and need for more integrated ways of thinking and understanding the world right now. By integrated, I mean this idea of approaching issues and challenges in life using our minds, our hearts, as in our feelings and emotions, and our body. Off air, Matt and I talked about this, and I flagged that I am very intrigued by the sense-making realm. I think it has a lot to offer. We do need new, much more expanded and perhaps sophisticated ways of thinking and communicating to solve what's ahead, because the way we're doing it now ain't working. We need to draw on all disciplines, the good ones and the good traditions, the best of each, and go hard. That said, 
I did say I hadn't fully grasped the whole idea of sense making yet. And if I'm honest, it's probably because those who have become the experty experts in sense making do use a lot of terminology that to me doesn't make sense, which is a very guru hallmark. Matt was curious when I told him all of this and asked me to feedback once I'd listened to his decoding of the Sense Making Gurus series, which I believe has now been published on his podcast. But here's where I do agree with what he and his Irish cohort, Chris, maintain. Many of the broadcasting gurus in the space are not living their message. They do tend to go all galaxy brain and didactic and messiah-like. The sense makers often wind up using complex terminology that, yes, doesn't always make sense. And this works to exclude and further empower the powerful, the experts. And I'll add this, as well as being somewhat, if not cultish, cliquish, the broadcaster world can also be very sexist, supporting Andrew Tate, for instance, and their guest lineup is remarkably lacking in anyone who is, well, not a white man. This crew has become increasingly siloish. They tend to have each other on each other's podcasts, as well as a rotation of other tech bros and NFT bros and bro academics and stoicism bros. It's a veritable white male brofest. And as I said to Chris, when the most dominant players in our society form a rigidly tight-knit exclusive crew and announce they know the answers and should be taking over from here, well, alarm bells do go off. Oh my, it is an interesting world and it could be easy to get thrown by the contradictions and the whiplash caused when we realise a voice who we've respected has started to climb into their messiah outfit and get comfortable up there high on their pulpit. But I think it's all at least inevitable that things like this start to happen as we wrestle with this new era of thinking. It's wild and it's good so long as we do indeed wrestle with it all. I'll speak to you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.